You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. This evening is going to be um, a bit of a voyage through what we know about the universe uh, and how it's constructed and what the rules that, that seem to make it tick are. And we're not at all ambitious. We are going to cover things that are smaller than an atom all the way up to the size of a universe. So I hope you're ready for this. Uh, it gives me vertigo just thinking about that. Um, because science is a process. It's not just an end product. And discussing what we don't know is far more interesting to most scientists than discussing what we do know. And so joining me for this discussion, we have, as you just heard from Robert, two of the world's most well-known enthusiasts and practitioners when it comes to theoretical physics. Uh, We have Carlo Rovelli, who is one of the world's leading theoretical physicists. He's co-founder of the theory of loop quantum gravity, and you may get a brief explanation of that later on. He's director of the Quantum Gravity Group at uh, Lumini Theoretical Physics Centre in Marseille, and he's the author of several books, and the most recent one is this one here. It's called Seven Brief Lessons on Physics. Please join me in welcoming Carlo Rovelli. And then on my right here, we have Christophe Galfort, who's a theoretical physicist and a broadcaster. He did his PhD at Cambridge at more or less the same time as me, actually, but he was in a different department, so I never met him then. Um, He studied the black hole information paradox under the supervision of Stephen Hawking. Uh, And he's the author of several prize-winning novels explaining science to children. And uh, this recent bestseller, this one here, called The Universe in Your Hand, which uh, won Francis, uh, the French Science Book of the Year Prize. So there's all kinds of interesting things in there. So please join me in welcoming Christophe Galfard. So to set the scene a little bit, to start us all off, I want to take you back to 1905. 
The, Victoria era, the Victorian era was only just over. Only a few decades before, physicists had basically thought that the rest of physics was tidying up the loose ends because they knew how the universe worked. It was mechanistic and predictable, and that was the end of it. Other things were going to be the more exciting um, areas to study. And they were wrong. And the one year, more than any other... You know, it's very easy to um, sort of big up people and ideas and to make heroes... Uh, out, of out of sort of, you know, to make easy stories to create heroes. But really, 1905 was a great year in physics. And it was a great year principally because of four papers written by Albert Einstein. And those four papers did three things. The first thing that they did was they demonstrated irrefutably for the first time that atoms existed. In 1904, there was enormous debate about whether atoms were even real. In 1905, that question was settled. And at the same time, in the same year, Einstein published the paper on the photoelectric, photoelectric effect, which introduced the idea of quanta, started the ideas in the quantum world. And then he started on the rest of the world and special relativity and the famous equation E equals mc squared. So in one paper, you proved the existence of the most fundamental particles that make up our the, the sort of world we see every day, the things you can explain our everyday world with, and then started these two great branches. So I'd like to start with um, Carlo, and this is your quick 101. Since then, since the photoelectric effect and the first ideas of taking quantization seriously, what's happened in the physics of the small since then? <laughs> We're not ambitious around here. I'm very happy it's not falling on me. So three minutes about fundamental physics. Yeah. Well, let me first say um, that um, this two, two of these four papers uh, of Einstein that you mentioned, the 1905 papers, um, not the relativity one. I mean, forget the relativity one, which is what Einstein is more fam famous for, but the other two, two spectacular papers. And one... Um, um, the atom papers, as you said, goes back to the past and one really goes to the future. But they are so similar, they're extremely similar. If you just think for a moment, both of them show that there is something granular in the world. So one of the two um, take this idea that the world is made by atoms, which is very old, right? goes down to, the, to Democritus. So it's 20, it was 23, 24 centuries old. So Humanity has always suspected that, that matter is made by little grains, but nobody was able to prove it. And Einstein has this just statistical argument, which is very, very, very nice. He's, he, he says if, you, if we take a glass of water and uh, we look at the small particles, imagine some powder inside, and you look at one of the small particles, it moves randomly. And if you look carefully with a microscope how it moves, it just, it's like it getting hits. Uh, kicks from the right and from the left and it makes a motion like that which the physicists call Brownian motion and it's like if there was a little thing hitting it, but in fact it's not like it is that it gets hits from kicks from, and from that Einstein says well what's hitting it is the molecules, the atoms, this granular structure of matter which, uh, which uh, uh, of water in that case and so from how much the grain of sand moves around you compute the size of the atoms Spectacular, and then everybody says, "Ah, the atoms exist." Here we have the proof in this. In the other paper, it's completely to the future, and it is really the 
birth of quantum mechanics, that paper. Because he says light um, is made by grains. So it's the same argument um, played in a different manner, except that this idea that light is made by grain at the time was completely outrageous. In fact, nobody believed it. People got excited. People believed him immediately about atoms, got very excited about relativity, and people said, well, he also did something stupid, which is uh, grains of light, the photons. And then he got the Nobel Prize for this something stupid. That, uh, no, of the <laughs> and his argument is fantastic because uh, um, it's based on the photoelectric effect. Light goes on, on, on a metal and uh, electricity comes out. But uh, this is obvious because light has energy and takes the electrons away and this is electricity. But what's strange is that electricity comes out only if the color of light is of some kind, and not if the intensity of light. This is strange, because, um, uh, because energy is the intensity of light. So if you have more energy, it comes out. If you have less energy, it doesn't come out electricity. Why the color? What the color has to do with it? But he understood that light is made by particles, and the size of the particle depends on the colors. So if the color is more blue, then uh, they're more energetic, the particle, and when they arrive, they can take out an electron and, and, and bring. It's like uh, um, when it's hail, say hail in, in, in English, um, it's not the amount, the total amount of hail, but it's the size of the grain that make an impact on your car. So it's not the, the intensity of the thing that falls, it's how big are the grains. So he understands that there are these grains of light. And these grains of light means that light also is granular. This granularity is the core of quantum mechanics. That's Quantum is quanta because they're pieces. So Einstein understand that the world is not continuous. It's in some sense granular. It's not yet clear how can light be a, a photons, grains, because everybody knows it's a wave. So a, how can it be a wave and also particle? So it actually happens, opens a kind of worm at that point. And then for 20 years, uh, physicists debate about photons, grain, waves, what does it mean, how do actually the atoms work with the photons, and it's a long story, it's not him to continue it, it's the people in Copenhagen, Bohr, uh, it's many papers, and then finally in 1925, Heisenberg get it and writes a fantastic paper, which is a true beginning of what we today call the theory of quantum mechanics, in which he writes a mathematical theory that explains clearly, no, not clearly at all. <laughs> <laughs> Appropriately for a paper on the uncertainty principle. Yeah. Well, yes, except that now it's a century has passed, there are almost 25, 90, 2016, uh, 90 years, and we're still not we still don't have very clear ideas of what quantum mechanics exactly says in the world. On the one hand, there is this granularity, everything is granular. So light is granular, wave, wave, any wave is granular, the particles are granular. On the other side, these are not little stones. These are the photons, the elementary particles, uh, things which are also wavy in some sense. So um, they jump around in a way which cannot be predicted, and uh, between one jump and the other, we don't know what they are. And that's a mystery of quantum mechanics, which to large extent is still a mystery. The theory is fantastic, explains zillions of things, explains matter, structure of matter, how the sun works, 
works, uh, all sorts of things. <clears throat> it's our best theory of motion today. It replaces classical mechanics, uh, but there's something mysterious in it that remains. Okay, so that's the status of the world of the small. It's your turn, Christoph. So starting in the years since Einstein wrote the basic equations for special relativity, what has happened in the world of the big in the last 100 years? Well, just to add uh, about what Carlo was saying, I, I, somebody told me that at the, end of one of, uh, Einstein's, at the end of one of his lectures to his students, Einstein told them he had spoken about quantum physics for a while, and he told them, if you've understood what I've said, then I haven't been clear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's very, very, very strange. It, and it indeed takes looks at how small things matter, interacts with other matter and light and what these small things are. And the other thing, the big thing, didn't at the time, nor does it today, enter within that framework. There is one force that we kind of, whose existence we've always known, even our ancestors have noticed, that we don't fly. If we jump, we fall. So there is something that brings, back, uh, that brings us back on Earth. And that thing is called gravity. But what is gravity? That is the second big, for me, one of the biggest ideas that uh, anyone has had ever that, uh, that Einstein gave us. So the question is, what is gravity? You had Newton in, in 200 years before who figured out a law. That's a formula, something that tells you that we can check. I can throw the water on you. <laughs> I know where the water will fall. Okay? That's the formula that Newton gave us. We learned that at school today, still, still today. But nothing tells us in that formula what is gravity. And Newton wondered about what is gravity all his life. And right at the end of his life, he died. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't find. But uh, then for 200 years, people have wondered what is gravity. And there were some tiny little things in Newton's laws that, that didn't fit experiments. For instance, as far as you're away from big, heavy gravitational objects, for instance, if you stay on Earth, everything will obey Newton's law pretty much in our daily lives. But if you get closer and closer to the sun, which is much bigger than the Earth, then gravity gets stronger, and you begin to have a drift between what Newton, uh, Newton's formula tells us and what reality looks like. Mercury, the, planet, the closest planet to the, to the sun, does not move around the sun as Newton has, had predicted. There is a mismatch. Tiny, ridiculously tiny, but a mismatch anyway. So, and that's one of the nice things about physics, when people don't know how things work, they have to use their imagination, and they can think about very, very strange thing. And so, one guy, not very well known, called Albert Einstein, <laughs> began to think about this, this gravity aspect of, of, of the world. What is gravity? So he thought, okay, let's get rid of everything in our universe. Get rid of the Earth, get rid of the stars, everything. You're left with nothing. Well, why not imagine that there is something left, like a fabric, something that we can't see, that we can't feel, that we can't touch, but something that would be there. Then let's imagine we put something back in our universe, and that something could interact with the fabric itself in all directions, bend it everywhere in all directions. 
Okay, he did that. And then he made uh, some formula that makes this work. And uh, so he thought, okay, this bending, meaning that if you're nearby an object in space, you will fall towards the object, not because there is a force, but because there is a slope that you can't see. Well, he used that idea and tried to see how Mercury would uh, revolve around the sun, and he found the right answer. And the same for all the other planets in our universe. So there was something right there, that there is a fabric in our universe that interacts with its contents, and this interaction creates gravity, which is not really a force, it's an interaction between the fabric and the matter. Now, this is easy, what I've just told you. It's easy to understand. What is a bit less easy is that this fabric is called space-time meaning that it is made of space and time, intertwined. The, the real space and the real time we feel every day, it's these two which are intertwined and bent by the matter. And this formula which he gave us, actually it's not a formula, it's an equation, which he gave us in 1915-1916, a hundred years ago, is extraordinarily beautiful in the sense that it equates two things that had nothing to do with each other. On one side of the equation, you have geometry, geometry of space-time, of the universe. And on the, other hand, on the other side, you have matter, energy, content, the contents of the universe. Basically, this equation says that there is no distinction, as far as gravity is concerned, between the fabric of the universe and what the universe contains. It is the exact same thing. So you have an equation. Geometry equals matter. Now it's up to you to figure out solutions of that equation, to find a geometry, to find a universe with a specific content that works, that obeys to that equation, and that would give you an idea of what our universe looks like. That is what we call general relativity, basically, and that's what Einstein gave us in 1916. I'll try to be short. So <laughs> well, so the here. state now is that general relativity, you know, he, he wrote it down and, and we've used it since then. It matches the observable world spectacularly well. And since then, it's just sort of been a tool until, wasn't you just thinking physics was all nicely uh, tied up? Let's uh, package that, put it under the Christmas tree. Physics is all done. Carlo, tell me about the problem with these two theories. We have the quantum world and we have general relativity, the problem, the problem is that uh, both these theories, which um, worked so well, in fact, both of them, um, quantum mechanics explain the periodic table, explain the, what we call condensed matter today, explain uh, behavior of light, and uh, all sorts of things. And uh, general relativity not only explained all sorts of things, but predicted you know, black holes, gravitational waves, the expansion of the universe, it, Everything turned out to be right. So for, a set, for half a century, um, it was like Christmas every day for the physicists because, uh, look, uh, the good old fathers in the uh, beginning, in the first 30 years of the century, wrote these equations, and uh, the world just complies. Uh, works, 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 works. Um, until you try to, uh, to see what happen together. And what does it mean, happen together? Well, um, space curves, okay? What happens when it curves a lot? And uh, 
the place where it curves more uh, around us is inside the black holes. Black holes was one of Christoph's uh, 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 main theme of working, is one of the main theme of working in physics. So inside black holes, the, 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 this, this curvature of space-time is very strong, 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 strong. So strong that, just a, if you do a little calculation, quantum mechanics is important. So generativity alone is not sufficient because this is where the quanta come in. So very easy. We have to just apply quantum mechanics to general relativity. And that's what we don't know what to do. And that's what, uh, uh, it's the open problem. And that's where we have today tentative theories to solve the problem, which unlikely generativity and quantum mechanics have not just been spectacular, spectacularly successfully confirmed by a sort of experiment we're working upon. And all my life, uh, well, a big chunk of my life has been working on one of these theories, loop quantum gravity. Let's come to that a little bit later. Trying to, you want to know how it works? Not yet, not yet. We have some <laughs> other places to go before we can get there. Ah. You need some more background before we get to that. Um, uh, but the point is that these theories don't play nicely. There are these two phys physics to the point that the two research communities that for a long time have not been talking to one another much. A, a, a big generativity community that studies the star, the cosmos, the galaxies, and all that, and another community that studies particle mechanics or applies quantum mechanics to condensed matter, and there were two languages, two cultures. And the world cannot be like that, especially because there are points in the universe, like interior black holes, that early universe, where obviously both things should play a role together. So space-time must be quantum, and that's the problem. So let's, let's go back to the, pro so the black holes are kind of central to this story, and I want to get to both of the books uh, that we've got on the table in front of us, and let's talk about um, Christoph's first. So this one, uh, The Universe on Your Hand, which both books will be on sale afterwards, so you can get them signed. The thing that was different about this book is you took the idea of a thought experiment, which is a very classic, you know, people have been doing, before anyone could do the experiments, they could always do the thinking, basically. So there's a, a fundamental part, especially in quantum mechanics, of the thought experiment, what happens if. And, uh, and you took thought experiments and turned them into a sort of tactile experience. What does it feel like to fall into a black hole? And um, that's... As a, as a way of, but the other thing I learned looking at bo reading both of these books actually is that both of them, right in the first chapter of both, talk about lying on beaches looking up at the stars. And all I can think is I'm doing physics wrong. Um, <laughs> but, but tell me about these well, thought, thought experiments. Thought experiments. Yeah. <laughs> we <laughs> thought, thought, but for thought experiments, I mean, is this um, is this how you think? Is this how you feel about the universe? Is that what's in this book? Like, you, instead of just seeing it as equations and you know a sort of technical problem that you can solve, you're living in it. Right? We are, aren't we? Well, I'm not in a black hole. I don't no, know about we you. are living in the universe. <laughs> I mean, we, we are part of this universe. We were discussing this with Carlo earlier on. We, we are living in our universe. And indeed, there are some places where our senses do not allow us to go. Hence, we have a mind which, <laughs> allow us to, 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 which allows us to travel where we, our, our body can't. That, that's one of the... If you want to explore something new on our planet, you'll have a hard time. If you want to explore something new in our universe, it's all there for you to, to, to travel in, in your mind. Tell us a little bit about what it's like. Take us on a, sh a little bit of this journey into a black hole. 
Well, the, the, these black holes, they, they are the most extreme object that modern science can imagine. Maybe there are even worse things out there, but we are not even able, able to imagine them yet. As far as, as we know today, if you take general relativity only, you don't forget about the weird quantum stuff, just general relativity, you have some star with gravity which explodes, let's say, at the end of its life. While it explodes, the surface goes away and the heart is compressed. Well, you can reach a threshold after which it is so compressed that its own gravity won't, makes it collapse on itself, that the surface will get smaller and smaller. At some stage, it's going to be so small, so dense, that even light won't be able to fly away from that thing. The gravity will be too strong. From a Newtonian point of view, that idea existed already. Imagine a particle of light with its speed, that is the speed of light, trying to escape something. If you try to send something away from the Earth, you can't just throw it away. You need a minimal velocity. It's about 40,000 kilometers per hour. If you shoot a, a, a bullet with a rifle in the air, it won't go to space, ever. It's not fast enough, so don't. It will fall somewhere. <laughs> so you need to, f to shoot things fast. You can imagine something that is a planet or some object, I don't know, that is so dense that even if you shoot something at the speed of light, it will fall back. That's a black hole. So that's something that exists within general relativity itself. And it even tells you, it's a very humble theory, general relativity, because it tells you that this collapse will never stop. Carlo will probably <laughs> talk about that later, but it, will, it never stops. It goes, the, the thing goes smaller and smaller, and its density turns into something infinite at some stage, which says that you can't use general relativity anymore to continue talking about it. So general relativity predicts its own collapse, its own demise. It tells you that it is not a complete theory of reality. There are loopholes. There are holes in the universe it can't talk about. So if you were to fall in a black hole, I wouldn't suggest that, but if you were to fall in a black hole, you'll have, at first you wouldn't feel that much. Let's, let's say, talk about a big black hole, okay? You would get closer and closer to it. Yourself, you wouldn't feel much. If you close your eyes, you fall through, you wouldn't feel much. But if, if you open your eyes, your eyes, something starts to... If you look behind you at your friend in the, in, in that's, that who, who was left in the rocket that brought you there, you will start seeing your friend accelerating his or her time uh, spinning faster than yours. Then you know you're in trouble. When you start <laughs> seeing things that are not quite natural or intuitive, then you're in trouble. Your time won't flow at the same rate as the time of people who are far away from the black hole. Then you will fall, let's make it short. Gravi gravitational tides will become extremely hard and you will be stretched, stretched like, uh, and you will die as a spaghetti. So, so <laughs> let, let's, let's, be, let's go straight to the point. So don't fall into a black hole. <laughs> <laughs> or bring ketchup with you. <laughs> but you do it in his book and you come back in one piece, so it's all right. So let's... let's uh, let Get, go back to Carlo for a second here. So your, your book covers many big ideas, and one of them, I think, that's mentioned is 
the idea of a black hole being a star rebounding in slow motion, which is a lovely idea. It follows on from the time uh, dilation that Christoph was just talking about. Tell us a little bit about that view of a black hole. It's basically, let's continue the journey. So we go in, we go toward this quantum region, toward the center of the black hole, and what, what's going to happen? Okay? And um, the idea came, in fact, working with Francesca Vidotto, who is sitting in the first row there. We worked together on that for long, from various points of view. Um, and uh, Christo was saying before, you know you're in trouble when you see, you look back, and you see your friends back on Earth that move faster and faster and faster. Why? Because time goes slower for you. And one of the things of general relativity is that um, time goes slower here, no, no, sorry, slower here and faster here. But a little bit. But because the ne- Earth is below us. Because uh, the Earth is a mass, so it slows time. And if you go near a black hole, it slows even more. If you go, the more you go down, in, in, in a, in a, the more time slows, and the more time passes. So imagine you're going inside, more inside, more inside. Now, to, for you, I mean, you're right, you get spaghettified, but, but suppose you hold on, okay? You've got a strong guy, you don't... You, you do you push-ups hold, before going. Hold, <laughs> just resist the squeezing, okay? You go to the center, and the more you go to the center, for you, it's very little time passes. It's a, what? I mean, a black hole uh, of, say, 10 kilometer, maybe a second, or two seconds, or three seconds, a black hole of many kilometers, maybe a minute, you keep going down. A minute goes down for you, but during this minute, outside, the universe, all sorts of, I mean, years, centuries, millennia, billions of years come by. So you're getting to the center, and the universe has done billions of years in the meanwhile. Okay? So if you're outside, what, we see things going down for years and years for years, but from the point of your side, the guy is just there, very, very slowly approaching them. Then what happens when you go to the center of something? Well, the simplest thing of all, right? You bounce. Right? If you, if you have, if you, what happens with gravity? If you take a ball, let it go, it goes down, 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 and then what? It bounces up. So our idea, which is not just an idea, in fact, is a result of the theory you mentioned before, look quantum gravity. It's a result of this theory about quantum gravity, which I can say something, um, how it works, is that when you get to the center of the black hole, you just get squeezed and then bounce out. And bounce out immediately, right? It's a minute for going down, a minute for coming out. Except that 10 billions of years passed outside. So the black hole explodes. And from the point of view who went inside, it's boom, boom, very easy. Outside, you just see a black hole, and you have to wait a million years, a billion years. So take us this... You've talked about, you mentioned loop quantum gravity a little bit. Tell us, the idea of this theory is that it, it reconciles. It has a, it's a theory designed to reconcile yeah. these worlds of yeah. general relativity and quantum mechanics as, as simply as you can, and I recognise that's a big ask. Can you summarise, can you say a little bit about what exactly loop quantum gravity does to solve that problem? What's the basic bit of mechanics, the basic idea at the bottom of it, which lets you think this might be a resolution. Yeah, well, first of all, it's a result of 
years and years of work of many people, one of the main sources of inspiration is, is Stephen Hawkins, which is a Christoph collaborator, and uh, uh, who has worked a lot on quantum gravity, trying to, 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 to generate the intuition of what happens. Because physics is that, right? It's two things. The intuition of what happens and the mathematics that describes it. And look, quantum gravity, it's, um, in fact, it is very simple, and uh, it's to... Uh, realized that the granularity of quantum mechanics, uh, matter is granular, light is granular, also applies to space-time. So this fabric that Christoph was, uh, was, was uh, talking about, Einstein understood that space is not uh, empty nothing. It, it's, it's, it's a thing. It's, it's a fabric that could bend, stretch, and do all this sort of stuff. This fabric is not continuous, like the electromagnetic waves are not continuous. It's made by grains. And these grains form a sort of net attached to one another. I've got a sudden view of the universe as knitting. The universe is knitting. In fact, yes, one of my collaborators at the beginning of this um, in the 80s went to a knitting class to try to understand how <laughs> the universe could be knitted. I don't think it was very useful to him, but he did so. Um, and the, these grains uh, are attached to one another in little loops. That's why it's called quantum gravity. These grains of space, these atoms of space... Uh, are described a mathematic, a beautiful mathematics was introduced by Roger Penrose uh, um, in Oxford, one of great uh, British mathematicians uh, that we use. And loop quantum gravity basically is a set of equations that describe how these grains of space interact with one another, jump around probabilistically like the elementary particles, except that now these are not little quanta jumping around in space. It's the little quanta jumping around without space. The, the space is made by them. Like knitting, right? This is, a, this is not full of uh, threads. This is made by threads. If I take away all the threads, there's no T-shirt anymore. So if I take away all this quanta, there's no space anymore. There's nothing. So this quanta make up space, but there's a minimal size, minimal, uh, minimal... There's no space smaller than that. Somehow, I cannot cut space at infinity like I do in mathematics. The physics is different, it's granular. And the loop quantum gravity is the equation that describes this granularity. And that's why uh, in a black hole I cannot go too small. Because it's not infinitely small. At some point something should happen to stop me. Exactly like an electron around an atom cannot go infinitely small to the center. At some point quantum mechanics stops it. It's a, it's a minimal size. Um, one of the effects of this granularity of space described by loop quantum gravity, it's a bouncing black hole, maybe, if, if you got it right. The other uh, place where uh, it might work to describe the universe is the other characteristic point where uh, we don't know and generativity goes wrong, which is the beginning of the universe, the Big Bang. And there the story is completely similar, in fact, in a similar mathematics, uh, what the theory seems to be described, there are hundreds of papers now working on that, starting from all possible point of view, is that if you go back in time, the universe is smaller, 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 very hot, very compressed. And if you go back in time, it's a bounce. So a previous universe that, in some sense, which is not very clear, get compressed and bounces, uh, bounces up. So that's a mathematic. I'm enormously excited by, because it's a... It's a visual idea of great quanta of space interacting, out of which everything comes out, right? The space, time, light, particles, it's just this interacting quanta. Uh, 
We don't know. We have to wait for experiments to tell whether this is right or this is wrong. Oh, the poor theorists have got to wait for some experimentalists to let them know what We are in the hands of it. Marisa Huxley said there's nothing as sad so in science that a wonderful <laughs> idea destroyed by a brute fact. So um, I just want to, So there's many things that we haven't got around to talking about yet, like why physics is elegant and gravitational wave astronomy and how we know any of this anyway. Just before we let the audience uh, ask some questions, I have a question for both of you. And it was a question that was asked uh, to me many years ago when I was a second-year physics undergraduate. Um, I'm from the north of England. That means I got very down-to-earth Nana. And I was revising quantum mechanics at her house, something to do with the model of the atom, Einstein A and B coefficients or something. And uh, she came up and she said, what's that? And I said, it's quantum mechanics, Nana. And Nana's very bright, but she hasn't had much formal education. So I tried to explain something to her about this model, this quantum stuff I was studying. And she looked very impressed. And then she said, ooh. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Because whether you're thinking about challenges, big or small, let's not dress it up. Life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. And what can you do when you know that? <laughs> Who's going first? Give a talk with beautiful people. <laughs> go on, you can go first. He's, he's talking very recently. Well, actually, most of the uh, of modern technology—that's what Carlo was saying at the beginning. It, it sounds very abstract. All this quantum stuff—it sounds like out of this world that does not correspond to our intuition. But it works. We wouldn't have computers. We wouldn't have uh, mobile phones. Uh, whether it's a good thing or not, I'm not. <laughs> I, I'm not, no judgment here. But we wouldn't have the technology we have today. We wouldn't have satellites. We wouldn't be able to communicate with satellites if we didn't have general relativity. We wouldn't have GPS. 
maybe that's not a good thing either. But <laughs> we we wouldn't we would have pretty much nothing of what we have as a technology. Um, there are two answers, right? One is uh, uh, our entire civilization is a civilization that comes out from knowledge. Uh, from uh, uh, we have light because uh, Faraday, Maxwell learned how to do things. We can construct big buildings because uh, Newton uh, uh, told us how to write the equation. That's one one answer. So um, it's infinitely useful. The stuff that comes out from pure curiosity research turned out to be infinitely useful. That's one answer. The other answer is that we're just curious. Everybody's curious. I mean, that's why people are here. That's why we are here. That's why we want to know. It's very simple. Like children go out and say, why? They want to know. We want to know. I want to know. I want to know what happened inside the black hole. <laughs> I can't sleep. You're basically still a five-year-old going, why? Yeah. Why? So why? <laughs> Yeah, okay, but... well, let's let our audience ask why. So you can go first. Okay, then. So there was a lot of talk about the sort of reconciliation of general relativity and quantum mechanics. And there's also been a lot of talk, though not here, about a grand unifying theory of physics. What do either panelists think about the potential of a grand unifying theory if the two truly have managed to be reconciled? Okay, so grand unified theories over here. Hi there, my name is Ben, and my question is for Carlo. Why do you not believe in other universes? In many universes? Other universes. Uh, other universes. Oh, oof. I was afraid you would ask <laughs> okay. why I don't believe in God. Okay. Okay. <laughs> 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 uh, which, who wants to, which one do you want to you do? You go the first in? two, if you want. Okay. So the first one, if I am, is, is about grand unified theories, right? Reconciliation, yeah, grand unified theories. Yeah, so there is something about, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what your question is, but let me just clarify what grand unified theories are, just so that we're all in the same uh, state, step. There is one thing that, as, as of... 20, 30 years ago, we had four forces in nature that were known. The one, one is gravity, and the other three are quantum forces, which consist of uh, photons, electromagnetism, exchange of photons in between things that are charged, and the two forces that take care of what's happening inside the atomic nucleus. There you have one thing that gets the nucleus to stick, as a, as, a, as a dense, uh, unbreakable thing, and you have another force that tries to break it. Those are the four forces that we knew. Now, there is something maybe in human nature that tells us four, uh, one, better. So there, the, the, the idea of unifying different theories arised early in, in the history of uh, physics. But even recently, some brilliant scientists worth Nobel Prizes managed to unify electricity and magnetism, gives you electromagnetism, then that plus the weak uh, interaction giving you the electroweak thing, then some other unification brought all this into something bigger, which is called the grand unified theory, unless you want to put gravitation in there. But you all, we already have a theory that kind of unifies. Whether it's elegant or not is another question. But we kind of have an, a, a theory, a vision, a mathematical formula that unifies all this into one single theory that occurred in practice when our universe was extremely energetic in its infancy. 
And we did manage to find elements of what these, um, the, the unified force would look like in particular accelerators. So that's something we're kind of confident about. Now, if you want to add theory to that, that's what Carlo does at night when he doesn't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so that, 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 to add gravity to that is exactly what we discussed before. And the reason why we want to unify all this is twofold. One is it is more elegant one than two for obvious reasons, which I won't explain. <laughs> and the other one is we do have the black hole evaporation formula, which tells you that such a theory very probably exists, that you can have a look at all these things in one set, which we haven't found yet, or maybe we have, but we haven't got any experimental proof yet of anything like that. Sorry, it was long. I want to, no, I want to pull you up on this thing about elegance because it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's in the nature of physics. If you look at the history of physics, it's always been fundamentally reductionist. There must be a simple rule. There must be a framework. Why? Like, why does it have to be true? Well, simple is relative. Right. <laughs> Obviously, when, when Einstein wrote down his equation, and uh, I think it's Arthur Eddington in England who translated the work for the Royal Society, and then a journalist went to him and said, uh, I think there are only three people on Earth understanding that theory. And he looked at the journalist and said, who's the third? <laughs> <laughs> so, well, it depends. Today, we, we do understand it. At the time, nobody did. Today, it's, it's taught in first or second year at university, so it's, it's relatively easy. Now, what Carlo does is not. And that's one of the things, to, 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 to be able to have the sensibility to, to, to feel the beauty of a theory, sometimes you really need to be deep inside it. We were discussing this uh, fast because we were, looking on to, we were looking for something we disagreed upon. And uh, the, the mathematical elegance, for instance, of loop quantum gravity is something that I do not... Uh, when, when I tried to understand the maths of it, I was like, Ugh. So it's not, not elegant. <laughs> it's like serious concept. So it's not elegant enough for you, is that what you're saying? I, um, I wouldn't say that. I'm in the middle. He can't hit you. It's okay. <laughs> no, I wouldn't say it's... I wouldn't put myself as a judge. I think I didn't get deep enough into it to see where the, the, the beauty of it lies. I, I've, I think the idea of reconciling straight on without adding exterior new ideas to reconcile straight on the complete opposite ideas that come from general relativity and quantum physics is brilliant. It, it, it's crazy to imagine. Can you imagine small packets of space and time? Fuzzy. <laughs> Wiggling. Within which space and time actually disappear. I've just I mean, seen your nightmares. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, and if you just pick one of these grains of space and time, that's fine. I think that's extremely pretty. But then you put them everywhere in the universe and like, whoa, and try to find relationships between all these with triangulations and stuff. I stick to string theory at the time. <laughs> <laughs> that's, probably, that's probably enough about that for now. Everyone's, yeah. everyone's gone very quiet. Uh, okay, other universes. Um, there are many colleagues of, of, of mine that are exploring the possibility of, uh, that there are other universes. Uh, we see our universe expanding, maybe 
other expanding universe, disconnected from others, or other universe in some other different sense. Um, somebody says, this makes no sense, because if there's another universe, I cannot see it. Um, I don't think that this makes no sense. Uh, maybe somebody can come out with some idea, some, some theory, some way of checking that there are other universes. But right now, I don't see any strong, convincing reason for thinking that there are other universes. So it's not that I reject the idea a priori. Uh, it's just it seems to me a bit arbitrary. It's more or less... Mm, suggested by the idea, well, we thought the universe was small, then we learned it was better, bigger, then we learned it's bigger, we just learned it's very, very big, uh, so maybe it's even more and more bigger. But it's too weak as an argument. And I don't see any clear-cut theory uh, that says, look, if there are many universes, then we do understand things better, and we can check and do this experiment, maybe not today, tomorrow. So it's not that I think it's not science, but I think it's, uh, it's too much speculating. Uh, right, so let's up there first. Hello, my, my name is Carl. I'd like to say a quick thank you. It's been very interesting. Um, you've told us a bit about the past and uh, how the universe came into being and the Big Bang and so on. Uh, my question is about the future of the universe. Do you think there'll be some... I hope this isn't too speculative for Carlo, but do you think there'll be some cataclysmic event and... In that case, will we end up like the dinosaurs? So to speak. <laughs> I, I didn't hear. It. We, we haven't got. We'll get there. It, so it's about the, the future of the universe. Oh, okay. are, we, are, we, are we all going to ah, go extinct? Okay. Is there going to be a big crunch? What's going to happen? Okay, uh, over there. Why is the discovery of gravitational waves so important? Okay, gravitational waves. Possibly easier than everything else. That one. Uh, right. Okay. Who's going to deal with the future of the universe? I think that the future of humanity, I hope it's going to be good, but I think it is at risk. It is seriously at risk. The future of the universe, uh, that's even harder. Um, ten years ago, we thought that most likely it was expanding and going to recollapse. Then we measured the cosmological constants, and now we see that it's actually accelerating, so we think it's expanding faster and faster and faster. Um, which means that five years in the future, maybe we're going to change our mind again. We're far from sure of what is going to happen in the universe on the long, on the long run. For the moment, it seems that it's going to expand more and more and more, which doesn't necessarily mean that um, everything is going to die in a cold uh, nothing. It means just things will sl slow down, slower and slower and slower, and maybe keep happening uh, I think we're in the realm of the speculations. Nothing, nothing is sure. Um, so gravitational wave astronomy. I do it then. The, if you remember what we were saying t before, the, the, there is some kind of fabric. Who, who asked the question? Uh, it was over here. I think. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the, if you remember, there is this fabric in our universe that we call space-time, and this fabric being bent creates gravity. Now imagine that within this fabric that fills everything that is around us and everywhere, you, you take two objects that spin around one another. Just like in water, in a fluid, you will have ripples in that fabric that propagate. These are called gravitational waves. So why are they important? Until, since uh, the first 
I don't know, since the first animal or whatever living organism walked or swam on our planet, we've only had one tool to look at the heavens, at what is beyond the sky, and that is light. Light, we have eyes to see, we can't hear space, we can't taste space, we can't touch space, we have light. All our telescopes, they gather light. Whether it's light you, your eyes can see or different type of light like microwaves, radio waves, that is some type of light. We've only, everything we know about our universe, we've known from light. And light has pitfalls, it is, uh, it, 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 it is stopped by dust, it can't cross a planet, it can't cross a galaxy, it is subjected to many different things. But we've learned a lot thanks to light. Gravitational waves, those ripples, they require an enormous amount of energy to create them for them to reach us. Imagine sending a pebble in a pond, the wave 25 kilometers away, you won't feel them. If you are 25 kilometers away, not a pond, but a lake, big lake, then you'd need to, fight to, 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 to have a mountain thrown in the, in the water for you to feel something 25 kilometers away. So these waves that we have, that some scientists have detected, they correspond to, and the energy that created them is the collision of two black holes, one billion light years away. So these waves have been propagating one billion years. You imagine the size of the circle in the pond. One billion year like that, it created a tiny distortion of space and time. But the energy that, was crea that, that created that is, corresponds roughly in one fiftieth of a second to 10, 20, 30 times the power of all the stars in the universe combined. That's what happened when those two black holes collided. But thanks to that detection, we are able to detect ripples in the fabric of our universe. And that is a new tool. It is not light. There is no shadow in space to gravitational waves. They propagate through everything, except black holes, obviously. But uh, apart from these, there is no shadow. We will be able, once they get much better... Okay, the first telescope that was built, Galileo watched the craters on the moon and the moons of Jupiter. With the telescopes we have today, we can see basically 300,000 years after the birth of space and time. And uh, that's an improvement. <laughs> <laughs> These first LIGO gravitational wave detectors, they detected on their first try, almost, two black holes colliding. We didn't even know that black holes really collided. We didn't even really know that black holes that size could spin around in that we thought so, but we had no experimental proof. We now have a new tool to look at our universe, a new eye here <laughs> to watch all these things. Okay, we are close to the end of our time. One over there in the middle of that back section. Hi, it's Audrey. Um, it might be a. Can you bit wave so we can uh, be, be sure who's asking? She's over here. there, yes. <laughs> uh, might be a silly question, but I've never really understood. The universe, if it expanded, what it expanded into, you know, infinity is like what's what's beyond. Okay, so what did the universe expand into? Uh, there was one up. Oh, and there's one over here. There's one in the middle over there. You got a microphone? Hi, hi there. Um, there's a concept going around in the media at the moment. Hi, sorry, waving. Yeah. Um, which is that basically, as as 
all of the kind of simulations that we do now become more and more realistic. It is a statistical impossibility that we're not already living in a simulation. So I wanted to ask whether you thought about that and your opinion Okay, are that. we living in a simulation? Um, I, I see no reason to believe that we live into a simulation. I mean, everything could be possible. In print, everything could be possible, right? Maybe I I'm dreaming and I'm a butterfly, dreaming I'm Carlo Rovelli. Maybe there are little green uh, dinosaurs hiding behind the moon. Every time we look, they disappear. Maybe, <laughs> I mean, everything could be possible. So somebody cook up the idea, oh, maybe we live in a simulation. Okay, maybe this. But is there of any interest, all these maybes? These are, is there any consequence of the idea that we live in a simulation? No. Maybe I'm just dreaming, I'm here. Yes, maybe I am, but I'm here, so I'm talking to you. There's a green so, dinosaur just behind you. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so I think uh, uh, strange things cannot be excluded, but strange things are not very interested in either, to me. Okay, that's simulation. So I saw which one you picked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the universe, universe expanding expand into? into? So who, who asked that question? Uh, yeah. Over there. Okay. So what is the universe expanding into? The first thing about that question is that there is a wrong perception that it is the edge of the universe that moves away and brings in the expansion of the universe. The way we understand it today is that what is expanding is the distance that separates you from everything that is far away. Meaning that if you look up there at distant galaxies, you will see that the galaxies move away. All of them. Whatever, wherever you look in the sky, you will see the galaxies move away. So when you see that, you have two reasonable answers, explanations for that. One is that we stink. <laughs> and the other is that we are at the center of the universe. And that second one is not that stupid. If you look at it, you see everything moving away, it's pretty clear that you are at the center. But that's not the way it's understood today. The way it's understood is that the distance that separates everything is, is stretching everywhere between everything. Not things that are too close, because gravity is strong, so it keeps things that are close, close, close by. But if you have great voids, then that expansion kicks in and the distances stretch. If you look at it this way, then even if you are on the other side of the universe, you will, have, you will see the other galaxies moving away from you as well. So every point thinks they're at the center of the universe, which is like humans. We all think we are at the center of the universe, basically. But it gives you that feeling. So the expansion of the universe is that. It is the distances between different points that expand. But there is no edge in between these points. It is the space-time itself that stretches. You don't need to have an expansion into something to, to have the expansion of the universe. Um, so, to finish off then, uh, I would like to ask you both to briefly describe the thing you would be mo that hasn't been discovered yet, the thing that might be coming up in the future that you would be most excited about seeing. Obviously, we don't know it's there because it hasn't been discovered yet, but what is the thing that would really make you hop up and down with excitement if it was discovered tomorrow or next week or next year? You can go first. Uh, aliens. <laughs> Honestly, I, I would give a lot to 
find extraterrestrial life during my lifetime. I think that would be the biggest thing, that the thing that would make me... Well, if they come up with gunships and stuff, I won't be happy. <laughs> But if we discover from afar or have any sign of extraterrestrial life, I'd be a happy man. Uh, and he was saying, who, you, we were talking about this a little bit in the green room earlier, and who did you think should be the first to meet the aliens? You. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I lied that's earlier. That's sycophantic, isn't it? Um, <laughs> But you are a scientist, scientist aren't you? So yes. we could use you. He thinks the scientists should get in there first. Um, yeah, for, for one reason, which is that the, the, some things about science are on Earth, universal. It doesn't depend on your culture. It doesn't depend on your mother tongue. It doesn't depend on whatever you believe. The language of uh, mathematics, of science, let's say in general, is universal. And maybe they have different symbols. Maybe they have different signs and stuff. I'm pretty sure you could communicate through science quite fairly, fairly fast. So the scientists Even, are the Not, not the with a slug, though, but maybe with some <laughs> other thing. I think that Christoph is right. I mean, the, the, he, he put it a little bit strongly, aliens. But I, uh, it, it seemed very unlikely until 10 or 15 years ago that we could find strong evidence of life in the universe. Uh, I think now most of the scientists are turning around and thinking now is very likely, it's unlikely that there isn't something complex of some sort. And life doesn't necessarily need to be of the same kind on Earth. It can be maybe in many different ways that we cannot imagine, but something like life in a unit, at this point, it's much more probable than improbable. Well, they said, they said that the last century was the century of physics, and this century is supposed to be the century of biology. So maybe the physicists are handing over. The aliens are more exciting than black holes. Can I check, yeah, but can I, can I yeah. check something in the room? Who, who believes there, there are aliens in the universe somewhere? Oh, yeah. You see, it's, it's, it's who, who believes there aren't any aliens in the universe? Oh, and who believes that there are aliens in this room right now? <laughs> <laughs> So, can, is there any aliens in this room? Can you raise their hand? Was that aliens admitting to it? <laughs> that's, that's serious, isn't it? Have you got anything to add to your things you would get most excited about being discovered? Well, yeah, maybe. Do I have 30 seconds? Yeah, more? yeah. yeah. Um, 30 seconds in the same time as the rest of us, not 30 seconds <laughs> inside black a black hole. hole. <laughs> um, let me put it this way. The last year have been very exciting for science. Gravitational waves, the Higgs, uh, uh, other... Uh, but it has been a, uh, a conservative excitement, not a revolutionary excitement. Um, why? Because uh, uh, gravitational waves, we were, I was dreaming before dying to see them. But, you know, we knew they existed, gravitational waves. In fact, generativity predict them. The Higgs particle... We sort of strongly believed. So all the discoveries have confirmed uh, theories. Uh, somehow nature has been saying to us, yes, you're right, yes, you're right, yes, you're right. Yes, this is great, right? Said, wow, I mean, we've been so good. But that's what, not what we really want. We want nature to say, ha-ha, something you didn't think about, something completely new. That's what we want. Or perhaps from, from my perspective, something about quantum gravity, what we are not sure about at all. So whether we see exploding black holes or something else, but something that just doesn't follow from standard model quantum mechanics and, uh, and general relativity. I would like something new, radical, revolutionary, 
So nature, please send us something <laughs> surprises us. Surprises. It has happened so many times in the past. Certainly, will happen again. Fabulous. Well, um, we have to uh, finish there, even though we've only covered a small fraction of all the bits of physics we could have talked about. Please uh, join me in giving a huge thank you to our two speakers today. It's been fabulous. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligentsquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Mm-hmm.